Welcome to Renovate, the young adult ministry of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We are for all young adults. Whether you're far from God or walking close to Him, we believe that our God fully knows us and fully loves us. So instead of leaving us as He finds us, He is constantly and graciously renovating our lives so we can look more like Him. Enjoy this week's message. Welcome to Renovate. I'm glad you're here. Yep, yep, thanks for that. Uh, Glad you're here. Uh, Love this place, love this ministry, love the God that we worship. Whole bunch of imperfect people. Love what Brooke said and just, um, man, setting the the temperature in this room that meant to... Tonight in this ministry is about Jesus and, uh, and coming together and making much of him. And so uh, that is my hope and my goal in this sermon. Uh, we are in a series um, called How to Ruin a Perfectly Good Relationship. Uh, so if you're new with us, then we're glad you're here. Uh, we're trying to, as Josh says, kind of re-engineer, reverse engineer uh, what it looks like to man, have healthy relationships. And so looking biblically at uh, some of the things that we do, that we all do, that really can wreck relationships. Uh, and so I'm going to jump into that tonight. I'm going to dump a lot of scripture on you. Um, we'll throw it up there on the screen, uh, at least most of it. But I, I want to start with this. Um, I need, to, I need to set this up and, and tell a story. And I have a sister-in-law who's in this room. Her name is Abby. Uh, she's going to, yeah, okay. That's okay. Uh, she, uh, she's awesome. Uh, she, she's going to hate that I'm telling the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it, it ties into what I need here to let you guys understand. And that is this. <clears throat> um, Abby, I love her. She's my sister. She's been my sister for a really long time, ever since I married Danielle. Uh, she is awesome, and I love her for a lot of reasons, but one of the top reasons I love her is she joyfully, willingly, and eagerly will drive to my house to build Ikea furniture for me. <clears throat> it's a thing that she does. Uh, it's a thing, and now that you know that, you will start to try to become friends with her simply to use her for this gift and skill and calling she has in her life. There's something about it where she loves building Ikea furniture. She loves the whole... Allen wrench and the puzzle making and all of that stuff. I don't understand it. And we just moved. And so because of that, we ended up buying a whole bunch of new furniture and a bunch of random stuff. And we bought a ton of stuff from Ikea. So we were quick to call her and be like, hey, Abby, we need you over here. And she was over there in like four minutes. And there she was with her, she comes with her own Allen wrench and her own little Allen wrench belt. And she's ready to go. That's not true. Um, Here's why that's important. I, I hate putting stuff together from specifically Ikea. Like, I hate it. Everything about it drives me crazy. And when I open up the box and I see all the pieces and somehow they've managed to get like a swimming pool in this tiny box and I open it up and I pull out the instructions and there's all these steps and I'm not proud of this. Like, I'm not bragging about this. This is me being vulnerable before you. I care about your opinions, but I'm being vulnerable here. Uh, I just, I hate following the rules. I really do. There's something about like step one and step two and I get, you know, and I start it and then I'm just like, forget it, man. I got it from here. And there's this thing that happens in me where I'm like, man, okay, I got it. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, well, I got through step three, but I can figure this out on my own. I don't really need it. I don't need to go back and check the directions. And because of that, I oftentimes, when we buy a bookshelf, right, it turns into a bed, right? Or, or we, we bought a cabinet, right? And it's my son's new bike, right? Those kind of things happen where they just, it doesn't turn out how it's supposed to and it's a disaster. And then I got to backtrack and figure out what I did wrong. And then I have to kind of with my tail between my legs, walk back to the instructions and figure out what in the world happened, which is why I love my sister-in-law because she actually will follow the instructions. This sermon, this series 
really, we believe that God has given us these instructions. He said, man, relationships are important. Relationships are this valuable thing that God has designed for us to navigate and be in, and they're good and they're fruitful. And he said, man, look at this. Look at how they're supposed to work. Follow what I would have you to follow. Function in these ways. Do these steps. And yet somewhere along the way in my wicked heart and in our broken relationships, we say, I got it from here. Yeah, 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 I got it. I got through the first few steps. I, I can take it from here and I can figure it out from here. And all of a sudden we take what his word says and his design for it and we stop leaning on it and stop depending on it and we say, we got it from here. And then we look up and we think, man, how do these relationships keep becoming so dysfunctional? That's where we're at. That's what tonight is gonna be a look at is a major piece of dysfunction of what happens uh, to ruin a great relationship. And all of a sudden we look up and we think, man, what happened? Um, some of this you might relate to. Uh, some of it might be cautionary for you. Uh, some of it you might be stuck in right now. So uh, I want to make an argument real briefly. This isn't going to be the crux of the sermon, but I think it's important to make an argument real briefly uh, to the idea that biblical community is something good. Biblical community is something that God designs and commands you to be a part of. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, the author of Hebrews says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon from, from this, and these, but I, I need to lay out that there is a context for biblical community before I talk about um, the cause of, of wrecking our relationships. We are called in Hebrews 10, do not forget to gather, meet together, encourage each other. That's a part of his command and a part of his design. Romans 12, Paul talks about that we are a body with multiple members that have different roles, but we should be connected as a body together. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them fall down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and doesn't, has no one to help them up. Uh, it's often talked about too in Ecclesiastes where a cord of three is better because it's interwoven and it's stronger. This idea that two people are better than one because God has not designed us to all be individualized. James 5, 6. This is the last, last one I'll dump on you before we get into uh, the meat of this. James 5, 16 says this. Therefore... Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It seems that scripture not only is encouraging community, not only makes a precedent and an argument for biblical community all throughout, but even here in James and all throughout the New Testament, we're called to not only know people and be in community, but know people so that we might confess our sins to them, so that we're walking in a way where we might other people might know the things that are shameful that we don't, that we are embarrassed about and that we are able to confess our sins. First John is an entire book that starts out with, are you confessing and bringing your sin into the light so that you might have fellowship with other people? Over and over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, biblical community, being in a place where you can confess your sin, being in a place where you're walking, iron sharpening iron as one man sharpens another. Over and over again, God seems to not just command community for us, he seems to have designed us for community. He seems to be saying, hey, I have an instruction book of what healthiness is going to look like for you. And a big part of that 
is being in this kind of vulnerable community where you are known and no other. So one of the greatest ways I have seen a perfectly good relationship get ruined is by isolation. Isolation. Isolation will ruin a perfectly good relationship. It'll ruin it. Now, let me define isolation and, and kind of flesh this out of what I mean here because it's a pretty bold and, and big statement. I think we need some caveats here. <clears throat> isolation is the state of being alone, right, or kept apart from others. So when we remove ourselves for an extended period of time, when we take ourselves or our lives or our relationships and we remove them for an extended period of time from community that's biblical, from wise counsel, from accountability, when we do those things, we isolate ourselves. Uh, I'm going to show us uh, through, through some big chunks of scripture and stories uh, in scripture how dangerous that is at the root and what we do to fix that tonight. Um, there's two ways that that plays out too, that isolation can play out. Um, it plays out, obviously, we're in this kind of relationship series, so it plays out in relationships, right? A couple gets together and that couple isolates themselves from biblical community. They're no longer known, they're no longer really walking community, and they isolate themselves. And we'll talk about that and how dangerous that is. But let's be honest, this applies to every individual in this room. I don't care if you're dating, I don't care if you've ever dated, I don't care if you ever will date. In fact, the next two sermons in this series are gonna be really applicable to whether you are married or whether you are dating and in a relationship or whether you are single and forever will be single. And that's something that God has called you to, right? This is still really crucial and really important. So I want you to apply it to your life individually, but I also want you to apply it to man, relationships in the future, relationships you're in, even being able to reflect on relationships in the past uh, in a way that's healthy. So that's what isolation is, right? It removes ourselves and it becomes toxic and it ruins relationships. Um, I, I want to give two cautions, kind of flesh out more importantly what I mean by isolation and and removing ourselves from an extended period of time. Because what I don't want you to hear to the individual in this room, to the person who says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm being told that isolation can be really bad, even for me individually. What I don't want you to hear is that the answer is being an extrovert. The answer, the opposite, the antithesis of isolation is not being an extrovert, right? If an extrovert walks out of here thinking, man, when I go to Central Market, I have so many high fives with so many people because I know so many people and I talk to so many people and, I, and at the tailgate, man, I work that thing. And when we're eating before renovate, I know so many people and I'm chatting and I'm giving them a high five. That is not what we're defining as biblical community, right? Being an extrovert, being an introvert has nothing to do with knowing and being known with your sin, with walking in open, honest, accountable, wise counsel, biblical community. Um, we don't just mean you go to a lot of social gatherings. Uh, and so what I don't want you to hear is, okay, so I'm not supposed to be introverted. No, we need introverts. The church needs introverts. The body of Christ is designed to have introverts in it. So that is good. That is healthy. That is healing. And, though, and everybody, I don't care if you're introverted or extrovert. I'm pretty r ridiculously extroverted. Everybody, everybody needs to stop and be still and remove themselves from the social scene. It is healthy to stop and be still and meet with Jesus. Um, I think so often on the other side of the spectrum, we just fill our lives with so much busyness and so many people and so many social events that we never slow down. We never listen to the voice of God. We never, um, we never seek counsel from him. Um, okay, so I want to make sure that's clear. I think it can be dangerous if you just hear me say, okay, I'm supposed to be more extroverted. No, flee from that. That's a lie from hell. <clears throat> Second, 
second little caution that I, I want to be careful you don't hear. Um, I'm going to talk unapologetically about how dangerous isolation is for relationships. I think a valid question is, what happens when you just get too many cooks in the kitchen in a relationship? And we have, Danielle and I have experienced this, lots of people who have experienced this understand what happens when all of a sudden it looks like, okay, I become a, a couple and all of a sudden I've got my entire small group in my relationship. And she's got her entire small group in her relationship. And her aunt is now in the relationship. And then also my neighbor, Sam, is in the relationship. And then also the guy sitting next to me on the airplane is in it. And then we got this person. And then also all these blog articles are involved. And all of a sudden, our wise counsel and biblical community has become a ton of cooks in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, we then become a performance mentality of now our relationship is I've got to prove to my list of 15 people that we're, and I, you've got all these people. And all of a sudden, it becomes this really messy thing where seeking wise biblical counsel almost feels like, oh my gosh, this is going to take, this is going to take three months because I'm going to have to have 41 coffee appointments with different people to get them up to speed, to hear their wise counsel, to apply that because we can get. And so what I don't want you to hear when I say isolation bad is that that means everyone gets access to your relationship. Everybody gets a VIP pass into the kitchen to hear all about your relationship. Uh, I think intuitively we all know like that's going to get really crowded. Uh, and that's going to get really hard to see how the Lord uses biblical communion, community and discernment through people and how he speaks through individuals in your life. Um, we want wise counsel. We want accountability. We want biblical community and to be exposed to people who might, we might confess our sins for each other and pray for each other. For people that... Uh, will sharpen us and challenge us and know us and have different, different parts of the spiritual body than we do and have different perspectives and experience than we do, even as one body, that we might gather together to have that. Okay, so I just want to clear those things up. Um, <clears throat> unapologetically, though, we're going to talk about how unhealthy isolation is going to poison your relationship. So I want to get to how does that happen, right? How does that happen? Um, <clears throat> If you just hear isolation bad, right? Unhealthy isolation bad, not, let's not do it. Um, I think that's really gonna limit our ability to actually walk out um, freedom from that and actually apply truth in a way that frees us from isolation. And so a lot of times we can just hear a sermon and think, okay, great, I shouldn't in my relationships or in my individual life, isolation can be really dangerous, so I'm not going to do it. What I want to do is spend the rest of the sermon talking about why do we do it. Biblically, let's get to some root issues of why do we isolate. Because if we just simply say, okay, cool, I'm not going to do it. Let's say we leave here and we actually modify some behavior and make some changes, and then all of a sudden we don't isolate ourselves as much. But we never really understood the why of what was dragging us there, and we never really got to the root issue. We just kind of changed some behavior. And that's not what we want. And I don't believe that's what scripture wants. I don't believe that's what the Holy Spirit wants for you and for your life. So we're going to identify where it comes from. And there's four things I'm going to talk about of where it comes from. The first one is this. Where isolation comes from. First, distraction. My relationship becoming isolated can start with the place of simply distract, being distracted by all of a sudden a romantic interest. Let me explain what I mean. And I put this one first intentionally because I actually, I don't have a, a lot of verses speaking against it because I actually don't think it's inherently wrong. In fact, I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. Um, but I think it's something we have to realize is going to happen in relationships. Um, this is, I'm going to tell you a story. My, um, 
This is one of my boys' favorite stories. When I tell them stories, when I tuck them in, and they always want a story, and I've run out of creative stories, so I just tell them random stories about my past or times I run out of gas or whatever. <clears throat> and for, they think it's great. <laughs> uh, this is one of their favorite stories. I'm not sure why, but it's, it, it was when I was first getting to know Danielle Fuquay, who's my wife now. Her name wasn't Fuquay before. That would have been weird. And probably a red flag, honestly. <laughs> uh, um, so I started getting to her and we wrote, we carpooled together to a Bible study, right? We, there was this Bible study. It was actually like a young adult gathering in Plano like this. And we all, we rode together in a, in a, in my car and lots of people rode in. So I had kind of known her and got to know her and been around here, her. Well, then one summer we were actually both taking classes at community college in Dallas to knock out some hours. Uh, and I got out of my car and I walked out of the parking lot. And I turned the corner of the building heading to some summer school class I had, and there was Danielle, right? And she came around the corner too, and they, we like met, and it was, we hadn't interacted a whole lot one-on-one. It'd be like in big group settings, and there she was. And I honestly do not remember the conversation at all. Like, I remember nothing about the conversation. Like, I remember seeing her, and then I kind of blacked out. Like, I said lots of words, and she said lots of words, and her mouth was pretty, and she was talking, and I was talking, and, like, we were talking together, and then it was pretty smooth, and it was like, all right, we kept moving on. And I, like, I didn't date a lot, but back when I was younger, and I was in shape and good-looking before I became hideous and overweight, like I am currently now, <clears throat> back then, like, I, I didn't, like, I wasn't a player, but, like, I was savvy, and, like, I had, like, game, and I was, like, cool, right? Back before I dressed like this, and, right, you get it, right? Just picture... Picture Ben 15 years ago, okay? I promise I was cool. And so I was relatively smooth, right? Or so I thought. So I left this conversation. And I was like, okay, I'm pretty smooth like this. And I walked back around the corner and she left. And I honestly, like I, I gasped because I realized I had literally stopped breathing. The entire time talking to Danielle, I just forgot to breathe. It was this thing where I just, that part of my brain just stopped and my amygdala fired and I could no longer access anything here and my lungs weren't going. I didn't notice it. I was just talking and trying to be smooth and you know, whatever it was. And then I came around the corner and I realized, oh man, I forgot to take a breath for a good solid like 50 seconds. Like I didn't take a breath. And, uh, and, and, and that was kind of, I remember like, that's never happened to me before. Like I'm usually pretty smooth in those situations in my target pants, but that wasn't one of those. <clears throat> here's, here's why I say that. Then I start dating her, right? Probably eight months later was actually probably when we started dating because that was summer. We, our first date was in February of that next year. So then I started dating, right? Obviously, obviously guys, if I start dating that girl, right? By the grace of God somehow, but I start dating that girl I, I would rather hang out with her than my hideous, ugly roommates, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to be distracted. Like, there is, there is something that's going to happen to me as a young man, as I'm dating this girl, and as I'm in a relationship with somebody where I'm gonna, she is going to be in my thoughts. Uh, I'm going to want to spend time with her. There's going to be things where I probably should be doing work right now, but instead, man, there's an opportunity to go grab coffee with her. Whatever it is, I'm going to be distracted. Um, and that, is, that will happen. And so because of that, that distraction will start to become an isolation that isn't necessarily initially unhealthy. But that is going to be a root cause to where we say, okay, how do we become so isolated? Well, I like her. I like him. I want to spend time with him. I would worry about the person who's dating somebody and doesn't want to spend quality time with that person. 
Like, I would honestly worry about that relationship. Like, if you started dating somebody, it's like, I just never want to see them, and I never think about them, and I never, right? Like, date somebody else, right? Like, don't break up with them tonight because they'll know it was my fault. But eventually, <laughs> right? Like, find somebody that's like, man, I, okay, right? Does that make sense? There's going, distraction is going to be a, a, a potential cause. Distraction itself is not inherently wicked, distraction, our minds, thinking about someone, our time, where we'll stop doing things, where we'll, we'll spend less time with these people we used to hang out with, to hang out with this person. That is part of God's design and relationships that can be healthy. Here's where it becomes unhealthy. The next three. And these are going to build to where they're going to get a little heavier and heavier. But the first one is, in this order, is not being wise. Where does isolation come from? Right, I've now found myself on an island in this relationship and we're isolated and we're not known and there's no real good community and there's no real wise counsel and nobody knows the sin we're stuck in. Where is that? Where is that really coming from? From not being wise. Why didn't I just put foolishness? Good question. Here's why. Because, because I think it's really sneaky. Because I think a lot of us would say, well, it's, it's not just about, well, okay, I won't be a fool. But I think a part of it, I think there's a difference between being a fool and just not being wise. And I think, honestly, not being wise is a little harder, right? Like, I think the boundary of, okay, well, I'm not a fool, but are we proactively wise? Not just are we not, are we, are we not being completely foolish, but are we proactively making wise decisions? Story time. Second Samuel chapter 11. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. This is King David. This is um, kind of one of the, the biggest blunders of his life in relationship. Verse 1 in chapter 11 says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. That's important. We're going to come back to verse 1. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Um, a lot of us, some of us know this story. Um, King David is defined in scripture as a man after God's own heart. He is a, an example in the Old Testament of what a, a, a man after God's own heart looks like. And yet he is a broken, fallible man who, because of lack of wisdom, stumbles into sin that has some massive consequences in his life. Um, I'm going to paraphrase where, where it goes from here, um, but the consequences of his sin here, he then tried to cover his sin, and he had Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, um, functionally murdered. Uh, he ordered that he be on the front lines of a battle and push into a battle that they know they had no business winning and put Uriah on the front lines so that he would be killed in that battle uh, so that then he could take Uriah as his wife to try to cover his sin. Um, the consequences of his sin and his actions and the consequences of that night and his relationship ruined, uh, ruined a lot. Um, the baby lost its life. Uh, David was no longer allowed 
um, because of this mistake, he was still loved by God, but he was no longer allowed um, to build the temple that he desperately wanted to do, the temple of God that was going to be his crowning achievement to give glory to God with his life, to establish this kingdom that God had asked him to, and then to be the one in charge as a king to build God's temple. God said, no, I'm not going to allow you to do that. And you no longer get that role. That role is going to go to your son to do because of his mistake and because of his sin, because of not being wise. What happened? Right? I get that. I get, I get what happened happened. Right? In, in this situation, with this, this consequence, with this sin, it's lust, right? Sees this woman, attractive woman, calls her. He, he utilizes his power. He, he puts pressure on her, right? The, this whole thing is a mess. But I want to look at verse 1, and I want you to see. Verse 1, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. In the spring, and the time when kings go off to war, where is David. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They won the battle. They won the war. That's great. He's not where he's supposed to be, right? David isn't where he's supposed to be. He's not, he shouldn't even be there. He's isolated himself and he's put himself in a place that's unwise. His men aren't around. There's no accountability for him. Where he should be is with his men at war and he's not. He's wandering around with too much time on his hands on the roof of his palace. And one thing leads to another, leads to another. Don't put yourself or your relationship in a place it shouldn't be. Not just don't be a fool, but be wise. If there are things that you know you struggle with in relationships, whatever they are, whether it's, whether it's anger, whether it's, man, Late at night, I become a really angry person, or uh, whether it's stress, whether it's lust, whether it's whatever it is, don't put your relationship in a place that it shouldn't be. Make wise decisions. This is whether this is this is for you as an individual to say, man, I don't want to put myself in an unwise place. I know my temptations, I know what my bents are, I know the things that I do that God says, walk out of those things. I know the things and the convictions that he's put on my heart. And so I'm gonna flee from those things. I'm gonna be wise and flee from those things. In a relationship, I know the danger spots for our relationship. I've learned from the past. I've learned from this relationship. So I'm gonna not put those in places they shouldn't be. I'm gonna be wise in that, protect that. One of the places that isolation comes from is us just not being wise. That leads to another place where it comes from, which is self-reliance. Isolation, it builds. It starts with, man, really healthy, great, crush, that's good. You should want to spend time together. That becomes quickly and can easily become just unwise places to be, uh, not being thoughtful, not being smart, not having good boundaries, and then all of a sudden, self-reliance sets in. Revelation chapter 3, uh, the end of this chapter, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. Uh, I love this too, and this was kind of, um, this was something that I've been thinking about this week. Um, our church, just a side note, um, we're going through the Revelation series of the seven churches in Revelation. And so uh, this church will actually be preached uh, in detail this Sunday. So if you're not plugged into a church home, come and hear Cody's going to preach it. I'm really, really excited about it. I'm going to tease out some stuff. I'm not going to give the spoiler alert, um, and I'm not going to have time to unpack this whole passage, but I want to read it for you, and I want to point out one, one thing, one nugget in here that I want you to hold on to, but then, then honestly, come on Sunday, and, and you'll get 100 times more from, from this passage. 
This is what John in Revelation says in the prophecy of the revelation to Jesus. In verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witnesses, witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Some of us have maybe heard this, um, this church talked about and this kind of prophecy talked about, this idea that, okay, we're not, and sometimes it's interpreted as, well, we're not on fire for Jesus. We're not hot, but we're also not like cold and it's kind of this lukewarm place in a spiritual temperature for us. I really don't think that that's where he's going with this. I don't think his point is, hey, I want you to be really on fire for Jesus or really cold for Jesus. Um, and if you're just kind of in the middle lukewarm, then that's not, that's not good. That's not the point of what he's saying here. He's gonna actually diagnose their real problem starting in verse 17. He says, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So now he says, you think you have all these things, but I'm telling you what you need is to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. We're going to unpack that in a lot more detail on Sunday, but here's what I want you to walk away with. The problem that this church in Revelation is getting called out by Jesus himself in the Revelation in chapter three is, hey, you guys are self-reliant. You guys don't think you need me or anything. The issue at the core of this church and so often us as God's people is I say, I look at the God of the universe who designed the the playbook for me to live a life and a life abundantly walking in the spirit. And I say, I got it from here. I look at him and I look at, the, I look at how he's called me to live and I look at how he's called me to lead and I say, thanks, thanks, thanks. I got it from here. I can be self-reliant. I don't need you. I don't need to do it your way. I can take it from here. Um, when I started dating Danielle, um, it was awesome. Uh, and great and fun and all of those good things. Um, she went back to College Station. She was at AM at the time. And I started, I started, um, uh, and so, and I was still in Dallas. And so we, um, we did the long distance thing. And um, you going into the relationship, I had not dated a whole lot. Um, and I had, I had never had sex. I was a virgin. And um, that was something that for me was really important. And it was something that, man, the house I grew up in and all those things. And, and honestly, my, walk, my honest, genuine walk with Jesus, it wasn't just like my parents told me not to. Like, man, my walk with Jesus, there was conviction there. And I really wanted to flee from those things. Um, and I started dating Danielle, this woman who uh, loves Jesus and, and uh, had really been turned into this incredible new creation. Uh, and, and I was just crazy about her. And I was, in a really healthy way, distracted and then that, for me, became putting us in really unwise situations. Uh, and then that, for me, became leading this woman who God put in my life, this daughter of the king, this woman who was precious to a holy God, and a holy God had redeemed and gifted in incredible ways. But my leadership of her then went from just unwise to just really self-reliant. 
And I literally remember a season in my walk with Jesus because I had never like been in love before and I had never, you know, been this smitten and I had, you know, all of those things where it was all lining up, guys. Like it was all lining up and it was all fitting into place and I could see it. I was like, this is it. This is the one. Man, I'm crazy about this girl. This is it. All these things line up and all that stuff. And I remember having this kind of conversation with the Lord in retrospect, really just feeling like, man, thank you, God. I'll take it from here. Thanks for, man, introducing me to your daughter, right? And, man, the way you have made her and crafted her heart and the way you've gifted her, I got it from here. And my self-reliance as a leader who knew Jesus and she knew Jesus, man, I led us into a season of our relationship of all kinds of sin. Man, all of those sexual boundaries that I knew were going to make our, to- our relationship toxic, I threw out the window. I threw out the window. And it wasn't like this conscious thing. It was just all of a sudden, those, that sin just crept more and more and more and more to where our relationship had become a really toxic thing. Man, all the, all the boundaries that we said we weren't going to cross, we crossed. All the convictions that we had of how we wanted to model our relationship and trust the Lord and more than just seeking after our own instant gratification, all those things that we knew and could even teach other people younger than us, man, we weren't practicing because I had just said, I got it from here. I can take it from here. I don't need you. I don't need your way. I got it. I love her. Thanks for the introduction. She's going to be my wife. I'll take it from here. Um, and it was super toxic, super toxic. Um, obviously, the relationship wasn't beyond the restoration of God. But I also want to be real careful that you don't hear parts of our story and think, well, but look at them. They turned out okay. And, you know, it was really, really toxic, guys. Um, we, had, we broke up for a period of time. Um, what I did to her and to her walk with the Lord, um, because we were living in sin. And so we'd come to, like, worship services, and we'd sing, and we would feel like, emotionally good about it, but we knew that sin was kind of waiting for us. And we knew we also weren't confessing it to anyone. We had isolated ourselves. I wasn't confessing that. She wasn't confessing it. We weren't telling anyone. We were just hiding it. So we'd come and we'd worship and nobody else knew what we were struggling with. And so because of that, we'd have a real emotional experience at a worship service. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that. But we still remained isolated, which means we remained totally vulnerable to attack and totally vulnerable to just keep repeating this because nobody else knew. And so we just stayed isolated and would have good emotional experiences and then felt close to Jesus. But then eventually those worship services just felt numb because we knew, because our God loved us enough to say, hey, I have something better for you. I have a better design than you're functioning in. I have a better way. And so because of that, all of a sudden we feel distant. She feels really distant from the Lord. I obviously feel conviction and feel distant from the Lord. It became toxic in my walk with Christ. It became toxic in in all the areas of my life, not just because of sexual sin, but because I was self-reliant at the core, because I said, I got it from here, because I said, I don't need community. I don't need what you've put in my life. I don't need to trust you and confess. I don't need to walk in accountability. Man, I had guys uh, who lived down there uh, who I would crash on their couch. I had guys who were there you know, in that long distance relationship who could have held me accountable, who loved the Lord. I didn't reach out to him. I didn't want him to know. I hid all that stuff. Ruin a perfectly good relationship. Man, because we just isolated. We just said, we got it from here. We can be reliant. We don't need him, 
man, I found the love of my life. I don't really need to do it his way right now. Last thing, last thing that keeps us isolated is shame. Shame, man. We were stuck. We were stuck. Whatever unhealthy pattern it is, whatever unhealthy way that you isolate yourself, whether individually or in a relationship, I don't care. When we isolate ourselves and we think we've got it, then we get stuck. Shame buries us. And then it, it buries us and it compounds on part of compounds. And all of a sudden we think, man, I can't let other people know this. I can't, conf- I can't bring this up to other people. This isn't buried. This isn't shame. I'm going to tell you a story. Second Samuel chapter 9. And we're not going to unpack everything, but I, I want you to hear something really, really sweet. And I think it's a shadow of, of Jesus and what he does with shame. Uh, and the king said, this is David. This is a couple of chapters before Bathsheba, actually. The king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. It's really important that he says he is crippled in his feet. So David gets to the place and he says, hey, I want to show grace to my enemy's lineage functionally, right? The king before me was horrible and mean and tried to kill me. I'm now the king, but is there anyone in his family, anyone in Jonathan's family who's the son of that king who I could show grace to, who's alive, that I could show grace, that I could, that I could give favor to? And they said, well, there's this one guy, but he's crippled in the feet. And it's important that they put that in there because to say he was crippled in the feet was to say he is not worthy at all to be around a king, right? He that, was, that is how he was identified. He was identified as this guy. There's this one guy, but he's broken. He is broken. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, in verse 6, son of Saul, the king who tried to kill David, came to David. So David calls him and says, bring him here. Bring him here. I want to see this guy. I want to meet this guy. I want to show this guy grace. He, he comes and he shows up. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, and he said, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? There's this humility in the, that culture, Mephibosheth would have just been covered in shame because of his brokenness. He would have been covered in shame. He would have been an outcast. He would have been unclean. And he comes forward and says, why in the world would you want to show me, a dead dog, such grace? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till, shall till the land for him and shall bring him the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table, the king's table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. 
and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So he lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, and look how it ends. Now, don't forget, just in case we were unclear on this, let's just be real clear. Let's be sure we end the story. Now he was lame in both his feet. Culturally, that doesn't make sense. That's not how it should have worked. He should not belong at the king's table. This is a shadow of what Jesus does, right? This is a shadow of how Jesus interacts with us. Romans 8, Paul tells us that therefore, if you are in Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In the New Testament, Paul says, if you are in Christ, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your mistakes, all of your wanderings, all of your doubts, all of your sin, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your mistakes and all of the places that we get stuck and we sit there and we've wandered through maybe lack of wisdom, through self-reliance, and then we get stuck, and then we, there's shame that covers that. And we realize, man, we've ruined it. This lie that we've ruined it, and, and God will never invite us back to that table. We'll never get back to that place. We don't belong there anymore, so we're just gonna stay here, and we get stuck. Christ says, That's, I came so that you might have life. For freedom, I have come to set you free. Are there consequences of sin? Yeah. Is there freedom and is there forgiveness from sin? Always. Always. An illustration I use a lot to illustrate this, and I have to preach it to myself on a weekly basis, is the one-two punch. Um, The one-two punch in boxing is a hook and a jab, right? Um, Some of you guys who have met with me, you you hear me say this a lot. Um, The jab is a punch in the face, right? The hook comes around the side and it turns the head, right? The hook is usually what takes somebody out, right? Your head turns, you black out, and you're out in boxing. But boxing is a one-two punch, a one-two punch. It's back and forth, back and forth. Man, we get punched in the face, right? There are jabs in our life. We get distracted. We become unwise. We become self-reliant. We make mistakes and we get punched in the face. How the enemy then wants to take you out is with the second punch, which turns the head, which knocks you out. Because what the enemy wants to do is he says, look what you did. Look how you ruined your relationship. Man, look, what you, look, at, the, look at the mistakes you made in your past. You're never going to be able to have a relationship that's God glorifying because if she finds out about your path, right, the enemy loves to pile on. After we get punched in the face, the enemy loves to try to take us down for the count by saying, now I'm going to just bury you in shame. Now I'm just gonna bury you in shame because you get punched in the face, but then the second punch is shame. You don't deserve it. And the same voice that on the front side of your sin is always minimizing it, you know, maximizing God's grace and minimizing sin. Oh, God's a forgiving God. It's not that big of a deal. You're doing a lot of other things right. It's no big deal. That same voice that minimizes it on the back end, that same voice says, oh my gosh, maximizes sin. I can't believe you did that really too far, really, and minimizes grace, keeps us trapped, keeps us isolated. 
isolated from community, which is one of God's tools to allow us to confess and walk in the light. Isolated from coming back to Jesus devotionally and saying, Lord, let me meet with you because we think I don't deserve it. I used to be so close to him and now I'm not. So what do we do? We avoid these things. We identify these causes, but then you run to the sources that God has given. You run to biblical community to let them speak grace into your life, to confess to people who understand the gospel and that we're broken sinners and to speak grace into your life and to walk in accountability with you. You bring your relationship alongside other relationships that are healthy so that they might know and you might know them and be known by them. Isolation will ruin a perfectly good relationship. The enemy wants to bury you in shame. So believe the promises of God that you have been forgiven if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can run confidently back to that table. He says, come and eat at my table. We don't belong there. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're not entitled to it. But we have a God who says, despite where you've been, come and sit at my table and eat at my table. May we have ears to hear that. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for how you love us, God. Thank you for your wisdom and your truth, Lord. Uh, would that be what sticks tonight? Would you reveal in my brothers and sisters in my own life too, just how, how dangerous isolation is in so many different areas of our life, God, so that we might flee from those. We might be wise. We might not be self-reliant, but instead know that we need you. We need to do it your way. And then, God, would you set us free from the shame that no longer belongs to those who are in Christ? And for my sister who's in this room, who's never experienced that kind of freedom, who feels your Holy Spirit tugging at her tonight, to my brother in this room, who's maybe, maybe he loves Jesus or likes Jesus, but he's never experienced that kind of freedom that you offer, tonight be a night where we surrender, where we approach your table humbly because we know what we deserve, but with confidence because we see how gracious you are. Um, God, that we would remember the gospel, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has allowed us to approach your table. Set us free for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. So just like Ben said, one of the most toxic things you can do to any relationship is to isolate yourself. Isolate yourself from community and from people who can make you a better person. Someone who's better at relationships, a better friend, and a better partner. And we want you to have that community, which is why we gather as often as possible as Renovate. So if you're in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to meet you in person. Renovate is on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., and we serve free dinner for those who show up 45 minutes early to hang out with us. For more updates from Renovate, join us online at renovateftw.org or follow us on social media at renovateftw.